Have you ever had the um, experience where maybe you had a, a moment of rest after a particularly difficult season of fighting or striving? Maybe it was that you were battling a sickness and you had that first day where you could finally breathe out of your nose and you kind of recognize that moment where you're like, ah, that, thank you, God. That's what it's like to be human again, right? Or, or, or maybe you just cleaned your house from top to bottom after a big family get together. It's, it's been a wreck, uh, but you finally scrub the floors, you get it all clean and you sit down on the couch and you're like, ah, rest, right? And, and in that moment of bliss, you consider God. Right? It's not just that this is good, but you think, man, God is good. He's been so good to me. I've been blessed. I'm at rest here. And maybe this then reinvigorates your experience and your preparation for worship on Sunday. You're thinking, okay, not only has God been good to me, but I'm going to do something back. Right? God has blessed me. I'm going to kind of pay it back. So, so you lay out your clothes, getting ready for the night before on, on Saturday, getting ready for church. You starch and iron your shirt to a crisp, and you think to yourself, I'm going to dress my best for him. Maybe, ladies, you pick out your, your prettiest dress, and you think, I'm going to dress my best. I'm going to worship my hardest, and I am going to bless him tomorrow. Okay? And then you go to church, and about midway through worship, you realize that God didn't ask for your nice clothes. That he actually doesn't prefer crispy collars or pleated plants, uh, pants as much as we might think that he does. And in fact, you aren't going to dress up for him because he has already promised and, and the worship is telling you that he's promised to dress you in his free-flowing robe of righteousness. You walked into the church thinking that you would dress up for him and you walked out dressed by him. Have you ever had that kind of experience before where you walked in and you're thinking, I'm going to do something for you, God? He's like, no, 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 I'm going to do something for you. Okay? This is the essence of the story that we're going to read today as God gives his covenant to David. But if you haven't noticed, uh, this is the surprising love of God that we've seen through all of the covenant of grace. Uh, here at Village, we've been going through a short series uh, during this Advent season on the covenants, looking at how all the Old Testament covenants lead us up to Jesus and the new covenant. And, and that gives us a great picture and a great hope uh, that, that everything that has gone on before us and God's dealing with his people is the same thing that we are getting the privilege to enter into. So going all the way back in the Old Testament, starting uh, all the way in Genesis with Noah, God gives his covenant to Noah, the Noahic covenant. Moving to the, the Abrahamic covenant, to, to the, the, uh, to the uh, Mosaic covenant, all the way to the Davidic covenant that we'll look at today. So uh, from the, the spark of hope at that proto-evangelium, which if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. If not, you'll have to go check out that first sermon. All the way back from there, after Adam's disobedience, when God gave that kind of first announcement of the gospel to them, to the rainbow painted in the sky with colorful commitment, to the renewed creation that God gave to Noah, to the faithfulness of God to Abraham, bearing fruit and barrenness when his wife couldn't even have a wife, all the way to the loving and joyful law given at Mount Sinai, we've witnessed a weighty story of grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That is the story of God's people all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is grace. And today we continue that story with the Davidic covenant, a covenant with implications for the restless human soul where God promises to build David a house. So if you would turn with me now to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel Chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 and see God's covenant with David. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. 
Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, no more, no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord for his people. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your holy and inspired word. Let us not take for granted what we hold in our hands. Let us not glance over these words thinking that they were um, quickly written down without thought. Let us not think that they are meaningless. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word today, help us not to just have a, a bare um, literal meaning of the text, but Lord, help us to be able to see a, a rich and a full depth to the things that you are speaking, not just to David, not just through Nathan, but speaking to us today, your church, your people. So Lord, we sit at your feet this morning asking humbly that you would give us your Holy Spirit, give us a, a fresh infilling of your, your, your spirit that it might enlighten and inspire us to be able to See clearly the things that you've given to us. By the same Holy Spirit that you've inspired these words, you've given us that same Holy Spirit in us, that it might bear witness, that we might see the truth that, it, that all of this points to, which is in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. So we come now to the Davidic covenant. But before we talk about the meaning of the covenant, I'd like for you to see the structure of this covenant matches all the prior covenants that we've looked at so far. I've kind of been laying out for you the uh, contrast between a covenant of works 
and a covenant of grace. And all the covenants that we've looked at so far, they've been of the same nature. They've been of a gracious nature. And I want you to see that clearly as we start to think about the Davidic covenant. It begins by recounting God's great acts in the past. And then it moves forwards with promise for the future. Like the others, grace is the preface to this covenant. You, you see this story, uh, this history, really, of, of David's life being drawn out in verses 8 through 11, where God reminds David where he came from. Right? He's telling David a little bit of his own past so that he is familiar and has a gracious mindset about him before he says anything else. He tells David that he was a shepherd boy, and God chose him even there. Okay, so he's wanting David to see, you were lowly, look where I took you from. So God led him, to, to, led him out of that and told him to cut off all his enemies, and he did so, including Goliath. Right? We all know that story of David and Goliath. And let's not forget that God promised someone else much, much earlier that from their seed, from their offspring, would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And now think about David, as he slays the giant. David is the one who comes and slays the giant by crushing none other than his head with a stone. Right? He hits him right in the head with a stone, and then he chops off his head with his sword. That imagery shouldn't go unnoticed. There's a sense in which David is already starting to kind of step into this role of this Messiah figure who is going to come and slay the dragon, slay the serpent. He is the one that crushes the head of the serpent. While the serpent may bruise our heel, we do have one that is provided for us. Even in, in David, in a, in a short and kind of brief sense, we get a, that imagery. Okay. Further, God promised him that, a great, uh, that he would have a great name, just like Abraham. This draws on the same covenant that's been going through all of the scriptures so far. He, he promised provision for his people as they are planted in such a way that they will uh, not be disturbed, right? So they're going to have a land uh, where they're going to be able to live. This is part of the, the Mosaic covenant as it grows out. So God reinforces that this is a, a gracious covenant that he's about to give. And let's not make the mistake uh, thinking that this is anything other than a covenant of grace given for mankind. Okay, So, so there's the structure of the covenant of bed. Uh, then the pinnacle of this vision uh, given to Nathan is in verse 11 through 13. This is kind of the height of where we really need to focus this morning in a verse 11 through 13, where God tells him to instruct David this. He says, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, while this does not use the word covenant anywhere in this text, you might be saying, how is this the Davidic covenant? This is, this is actually a covenant given here. This promise is what later became known as the Davidic covenant. And, and we're not just saying that. Uh, God's word actually backs this up. In Psalms, if you read later, when the psalmist, when David most likely, is reflecting on this uh, this word that the Lord gives him. It says in Psalm 89, 3 through 4, says this, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Okay. So the Psalms solidify for us that this actually is a covenant. This is the covenant that God gave to Noah, or sorry, that God gave to, to David, where God has promised to make David a house. Okay, so the house is there, and that's pretty pretty central when we're starting to think about the Davidic covenant. Now, let's move now to the meaning. Okay, we've looked at the structure, and we've looked at how it, this is a formal covenant. Now, what does this covenant mean? Well, if you would turn your attention very closely to verse 11 with me, where it says, The Lord will make you a house. 
the Lord will make you a house. Now, when I read that, I used very basic prose. Okay? I didn't have any really inflection or emphasis when I said it. I, I didn't uh, put anything more on it than just the bare word. The Lord will make for you a house. But notice how things might change the meaning of the way that we read things if we inflect our voice a little bit different. It's been said before that just reading is interpretation. You ever heard that before? The, the way that you read is actually a bit of interpretation. Now, let me explain this and show you as an example how this is true. The Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. Here you would pay special attention to the building aspect. If I say the Lord will make you a house, maybe image of, images of construction would pop into your mind. You think of an unfinished house, maybe the framing's up when we say it like that. Or how about the Lord will make for you a house? Okay, if I say it that way, then you would probably think of more of a finished house much more. You would think the walls are up already. Uh, maybe the roof's already on it. Uh, I mean, you get this imagery. Maybe even if you if you know the biblical story that the house is talking about a temple, you might even th start thinking of this finished temple imagery. Okay? Now, now, what about this? The Lord will make you a house. See how that changes? The way that you read things? This changes our perception quite a bit when we read it like this because the meaning shifts from the more physical understanding to a metaphysical understanding. Okay? It's going beyond just the, the bare literal reading. It moves to something deeper. It moves from a literal house to a spiritual house where God is saying that from David's body would come a kind of house, right? A throne is what he said. The kingdom is really the images uh, that you're getting. So from his offspring would come one who would establish a throne forever. Forever's a long time, right? And I say this not to diminish the literal reading of this because that can't be ignored either. either. The, the literal meaning is that David wouldn't build this house but God would build it through Solomon, right? That happened. That's part of the history of Scripture. Uh, and the literal meaning is talking about a physical temple, not just a house. That should be noted as well. So he's not just talking about a, a house to kind of live in and uh, inhabit as a, a normal family way of living. But this is a temple place. This is a, a place of worship. It's talking about the place where God and man would come together, where God's presence was. We're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was promised to be. It used to be in a tent and kind of went around in different places, and that was the place where God and man would kind of come together and meet, where, where heaven and earth would in a real way kind of overlap, and they would be able to come together and have that kind of communion between the two. But suppose we isolated the meaning of this text to a literal reading only, where we just cut it off there. What are the implications then if the temple, the physical temple, was destroyed in 586 B.C., which it was? Right? This temple that Solomon built, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Or after they rebuilt it in Jesus' day, which was the second temple, they called the second temple Judaism, the time of Jesus, they built this again. And then Jesus comes around this, the second temple that uh, the, the Jews have rebuilt, and he says things like, tear down this temple— and in three days, I will rebuild it. Okay. And then in 70 AD, what happened? In 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed that temple. So again, there is no physical temple. It has never been rebuilt. Where does that leave God's promise? If this was meant to be read with a hyper-literal reading that only saw the physical side of things, right? How is it an everlasting covenant with his offspring when Solomon died a long time ago and there remains no Davidic king on the throne who reigns right now? No temple, no king right now. How can this be said to be eternal if it's only a literal, physical way of reading this? Okay? 
the point that I'm trying to make here and that, I, that I'm pressing is that we should see that the nature of this Davidic covenant is, is one that should would be established eternally, spiritually, but also personally. Okay, There's a deeper understanding that we need to get here that's pointing forward to something else. Where, where through the personhood of his offspring, the house would actually be the body of his offspring. That's why when Jesus will start talking about the temple, tear down this temple and in three days you will rebuild it. He's, he's saying something more than just a physical thing here, isn't he? Right? And, and perhaps more importantly, uh, he would have this father-son relationship, as it tells us in verse 14. And this is an even tighter relationship than David and Solomon. Okay, This is some other kind of really, really deep, tight-knit bond where father and son would be together. Okay, This shifts the meaning away from Solomon and his temple-building project to one who would come later to fulfill the covenant in a much fuller and in an eternal sense. Okay, we're going to talk about that after Christmas. Right? This is Advent. We're, we're in the waiting. We're in the, the preparation season. This is where it kind of gets us locked and loaded, ready to celebrate Christmas. We're like, oh, yes, this is right. It's ready, but not yet. Okay, we're going to look at that after, the, after Christmas and the new covenant. So let's camp out here in, in this Advent season and take this Davidic covenant and try to, to shift now to the narrative and apply it to ourselves and try to wrap our minds around how this might apply to us. Okay, let's look at this story and see how does this come to me in 2023, almost 2024 now, uh, as, as a member of Christ's church. Well, going back to the story, did you catch the subtlety of what actually happened when David proposes to build God a house? Oftentimes, when we kind of loosely reflect upon the story, I know I've done it before, uh, we recall it as the time where David told God that he would build him a house, and God basically said, okay. We'll build the house then. We'll build the temple. We'll move, we'll move forward. But that's not exactly what happened. Okay? What happened is, is God said, or sorry, David said to God, I will build you a house. And God said, no, I will build you a house. Okay? There's a, there's a subtle difference there. David said, I will build you a house. And God said, no, I will build you a house. The scene basically goes like this. David is sitting back, kind of basking up the aesthetic beauty of his own cedar house and realizes that he's at rest from all his enemies and not without cause, right? God's provided this beautiful cedar house for him and he's at rest from his, his enemies and he's realizing this isn't just me, right? God's done this. This is the Lord's work. This is grace upon me. I'm realizing now God is good. He's been really, really good to me. In a way, we could say that David is moved by God's grace to build. Right? It's the grace that fuels this to, to build, to, to work for God. Okay? He, he's saying, uh, he's, he's, like, he's feeling that he can help God out by building a better house of worship. Is really where, where he starts to go. Rather than living in a temporary tent, this is where they were before. Remember the tent kind of went around with Israel. Rather than living in a temporary tent, David's like, God, why don't you stay for a while? We're, we're here in Jerusalem. This is a really good thing. Uh, this is the, the, the place of peace. This is where Melchizedek once was, the, the prince of peace, uh, the king of peace, the, 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 prince, or the, the high priest uh, of peace. This is the peace town. Why don't we just put your temple here? Why don't we build a really awesome temple, and we'll just set up camp here. We'll, we'll put our permanent residence here. So, so like the times that we dress extra nice to church, David feels like adding a little zing to things will really help the atmosphere of worship. He's going to kind of spruce it up a bit. But God quickly clears up the misunderstanding by saying that he never asked to be in a house of cedar. That, that wasn't what 
God asked for. And the nomadic life in a tent actually suited him just fine. God was able to accomplish his purposes just fine in what he was doing before. Why is David all of a sudden thinking that he needs to do something for God? Church, in our experience of grace, we can sometimes be moved to works, but in an unhealthy way. Okay, In an unhealthy way. Grace can actually move us sometimes in the wrong direction. Uh, and, and we can, ex or maybe I should say, grace, we experience grace in, in our flesh. We can take that in a wrong direction. In this text, David is actually corrected by God, something that we miss a lot of times, right? Albeit the most gentle and tender correction you may have ever seen, it's still a redirection that God gives to David. He doesn't say, okay, David, great plan, let's go. That's not what happens in the story. Now, I don't want to put words in David's mouth, but it's almost like he's telling God that he doesn't have to live like that in a nomadic and temporary way amongst his people, that David can kind of dress him up, as it were, like God has dressed David up by giving him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So David trips up a bit into a kind of pay-it-back mentality, right? You pat my back, I'll pat yours, God. We'll kind of even each other out. You work for me, I'll work for, for you. We'll have that kind of relationship where we kind of take care of each other kind of thing. And it's here that I'd like to, to direct this text to our own hearts and ask if we maybe sometimes work because we feel that we need to earn our stay in the kingdom. Where we experience God's grace and we're like, that's not fair that I haven't really held up my end of the deal. I need to work hard to keep it. Okay, God's done something and I'm going to kind of earn it back. So, and now don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to paint David as falling into, or us, falling into some works, righteousness, salvation. I'm, I'm tempted to apply uh, Paul's words in Galatians where he says, Having begun by the Spirit, will you now be perfected in the flesh? Where it's kind of like where you start by the Spirit and you move into the flesh. But I don't think that that quite applies here. I think it's something more subtle than that. What I'm trying to do is simply draw attention to the fact that God didn't desire what David was trying to do for God. He didn't want that. Instead, God wanted to do it for him. Okay? God wanted to do it for him. It's, it's, it's almost like God's like, great plan. I see where you're going there, but let me do that for you rather than you do that for me. So the direction is really important to God. He doesn't want this, this thing to be where David initiates it. He wants it to be seen where God initiates it for David. So David proposes to build a permanent meeting place for God uh, and for God and himself. And it's not that God didn't want that. God didn't say no altogether to the temple, right? God actually did want this. He just wanted David to realize that this wasn't David's idea, that this was God's idea of engaging humankind, right? You see, it's subtle, but I think that we really need to pay attention to that subtlety because there's a tender correction for our own hearts here too, where we can see where what David was doing, we can see that there was maybe the right intention, but not exactly what God wanted. God is telling us this morning that he will build you a house. He will build you a house. You know, at Village Church here, for those of us who are members who've kind of been on this journey for the last couple of years, we sit in a similar place to David right now. We are at rest from our enemies. God has increased our numbers drastically, and we might be tempted to hop up and tell God what we're going to do that's going to be really awesome for him in 2024. Right? January is the time of year for that. Our New Year's resolutions were, were like, God, 2023 has been awesome. 2022 was awesome too. 2024 is the year where I'm awesome to you. Okay, 
I think it would be tempting for us to do that. I mean, things have been really good for here, uh, for us here at Village. God has blessed us. He's growing us. And, and we'll, we're, we're tempted to tell Jesus this morning, we will build your church, right? Right? But God is gently reminding us this morning that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a subtle difference, but there is a difference, Okay. The, the difference is God is doing that work. It's where, yes, we're watering. Yes, we're sowing. Yes, we're doing that work. But who's given the growth? It's God. That matters to God. Keeping that direction and heart oriented in the right way matters to God. And it obviously mattered because he corrected David. Right? He didn't leave it as it was with David's idea. He says, yeah, kind of, yeah, but let's do it this way, David. Okay? He is the, he's telling us that this morning that Jesus is the one in whom we worship. Jesus is the one that builds his church. He is through whom we worship and to whom we worship. Jesus is the Father's house with many rooms that he has prepared for us, right? He is all of that. So God will not let David build him a house. He will build David a house. This again points to God fulfilling both ends of the covenant in Jesus, right? We've talked about this so far in our covenant series where it seems that every time God is really trying to reiterate to us that it's not we keep up our end and God keeps up his end and that's how it'll work. It's that he keeps up both ends, right? He fulfills the righteousness for us and he takes the price of sin that we deserve, right? He does both. He's the one that walks through that splitted sacrifice saying, no, not you, Abraham, too, me only. I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to uphold you. I am going to lead you. When you drop the ball, I am the one that is going to do this for you. That is what God is telling us this morning. So it's not that God wants us uh, to build him something. It's that he wants to build us into something. Okay? Hebrews 3 aptly reminds us that Jesus is faithful over God's house and we are God's house. Okay, that starts to change things a little bit when we think about it like this. It's not that we're building up some awesome project to God. It's that we are the project itself. God is the one working through us, and he does want to work through us, but let's not think that it's us doing something for God. It's God really doing something for us. It's God's rich grace pouring out on us, thinking that we can build upward to God. You know what it smells like? Babel. It starts to smell like the Temple of Babel, where we can kind of build up and we'll reach heaven if we just get enough people together in, in the name of mankind and the, the name of the city and the name of the polis and the name of community. We can build up and build this awesome thing for God. But the biblical vision is that heaven actually comes downward. Okay, Heaven comes to us. We don't come to heaven. Heaven comes to us because why? It's out of our reach. We, we, we could never reach heaven in the true sense that we should. And if we did reach it on our own efforts, we'd find that when we finally got up to the top, we weren't worthy to get there. That God would smack down the whole thing and say, that's not the kind of thing that I want. Hear the language from Revelation 21, 2 through 3. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Mind you, where is this temple that God is going to build for David? It's in Jerusalem, right? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So as it turns out, God really does dress us up. Doesn't he? We are the bride adorned by God himself coming down out of heaven where he comes and dresses us in his robe of righteousness and says, 
this is what I want you to be. You, you have all these uh, imaginations of what you could be for me. This is who I want you to be. You are my bride. I dress you up, and the righteousness that you're going to have is going to be mine. It's, it's my righteousness. I'm going to put that in splendor and beauty and holiness on you, and I will receive you in that way. Amen? Typically, I end right now with a prayer from my own heart. But today, I'd actually like to read David's prayer of gratitude in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, if you keep reading here, God, you see, he gently corrects his plan, and David receives this correction really well. He actually bursts into a prayer after God tells these things to him through the, the, the prophet Nathan. You'll find that at the end of this prayer, David's redirected heart, right? he's, he's had an adjustment, he's had a recalibration. David's redirected heart is actually to pray for more blessing upon his own house. Okay, so he's saying, God, I now understand what you're trying to do. Please bless me more. Right? He's saying, Bring, keep pouring down the blessing on me. So in light of God's revelation to him, he's given a renewed courage, even in use of that language of courage and a deepened clarity on how to pray. And that's kind of the application that I want to take this morning is that God's teaching us something about our own hearts. And I want that to move us in our orientation towards prayer and how we pray, how we think about uh, our petitions up to God and what we're asking in the, in the manner in which we ask these things. So here David will also say that this is instruction for mankind. Okay, And I take that to mean that it certainly applies to us. We are part of mankind. So we can lock arms with the psalmist here and pray with it and connect our hearts even to his prayer. And maybe even in a sense, uh, we could switch the words around and see that the, the, the Further out uh, that this goes in history, we see that David starts to be seen through the lens of Jesus, where Jesus is that offspring. I don't like when pastors like to switch words around the Bible and say, read this with your name there. But there is a sense in which we can see that Jesus will come and fulfill this, and that these promises, these, uh, these co this covenant given to David really is for us. So besides the fact that it says that it's for all mankind, we can see that in Jesus, this covenant is given to us. That's the eternal sense. That's the forever sense. That's the sense in which we can say, oh, wait, it's not just for David and Solomon. It's for me too. Amen? So I'm going to read this prayer this morning. Uh, I welcome you to read it too. It just continues what we uh, read this morning in chapter 7. It picks up in verse 18. I'm going to finish out the chapter. Uh, you'll notice that the, the title there is David's Prayer of Gratitude. So this is a prayer of gratitude for, for the people of village this morning to God in, in the words of David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servants know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. 
and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Let's now continue in worship. Um, we're going to stand and sing together, All Glory Be to Christ. This is on hymn number one. It's right there on the front. You don't even have to open up the, the hymnal, and you can read the words 